what we have just done can be called the full sweep. Whereas the first method was called part by part. Now, if you remember, I explained the meaning and the results possible of the part-by-part method, which is insight. Whereas this one is mainly geared towards calm. And in a moment I will again recapitulate those two aspects of meditation because there are no others. These are it, no no matter what sort of method we use. Methods are nothing but keys, keys that will open a door, maybe, if we learn to put them in the keyhole. Otherwise, we might be fumbling with the keys for the next 20 years. They are the keys that will open the doors to calm and insight, to samatha and vipassana, and that's all there is. Methods are innumerable, and they can be used this way or that, whichever way we like to turn the key. But if they don't bring either calm or insight, we haven't opened the door, that's all. And we might have to find a new key. So the first method was geared towards insight. And the second one is geared towards calm. Which does not mean that we can't get calm in the first one and gain insight from the second one. They just have a little more focus in either direction. I have already explained that the very first entry into the meditative absorption, which is the meditation, which means calm or samatha. The very first entry is a very delightful sensation. And this delightful sensation is, of course, in the body. But it doesn't have anything really to do with the body because if it did, we'd be having it all the time. It has to do with purification and concentration. Now here, in a controlled environment, it's quite possible to have purification and concentration. Even though that may not last, it's here. So we can be 
quite close to gaining access to this very delightful sensation. And it's quite possible to get it through this method. And I will find out in a moment whether you did or not. If it's possible to gain it through this method, then by all means we do it. Method is method. It has no intrinsic value as such. Although some people seem to believe that their method, their in apostrophes, has intrinsic value, that's a mistaken view. Method is method. So if it's possible to gain entry, gain access to the delightful sensation through doing this method, then by all means, that's the way to open the door. And if we use this method and the delightful sensation arises when we're only one quarter or one half or one third or one tenth down this body, that's fine. Then we use the delightful sensation as our meditation subject. And we have entry to PT, P-I-T-I, which is the enormous antidote against ill will. What more can we ask? Not only is it pleasant, not only is it enjoyable, but it also helps us against our ill will. We don't have to do anything except stay on it. As we stay on it, we have entered into the possibility of gaining access to the different chambers in the same mansion. A mansion which is our inner life, our inner purity, and in which we have eight different mansions. This is the first one. So if this method can do it, that's fine. Some people can do it with loving-kindness meditation, some people can do it with attending on the breath, and some people who've become skilled at it just sit down. That's all. And some do it walking around. No matter what we do, as long as we get in there. And being in there, this is then the meditation subject for ten or so minutes without looking at the watch all we know that it's a chunk of time and if, if this is chunk of time has been steady on this delightful feeling there's absolutely no reason why one can't become aware of the simultaneously arisen joy which we now separate from the delightful feeling and use the joy as our second stage in this way of calm and the joy being then the second meditation subject. They both arise together. All we have to do is change the focus of attention. We can only have joy if we have delightful feeling of no other possibility. If this will do it, we just use it for as long as necessary. Eventually, if one keeps on going, 
we may not have to use it. We may just have to sit down and become aware of it or just start putting attention on the body. If this has not produced delightful feeling, no harm done. This is again a great help in gaining concentration because it is a little more interesting than just being on the breath. It's very easy to become quite unattentive even when one thinks one is still on the breath. One doesn't even have any clear and precise thoughts, but one doesn't have any clear and precise attention on the breath either. And that is a time to take another method because the mind is a magician. It will do anything, it will believe anything, it will play any game that it can think of. And it can think of so many games. So it will just doze off, without falling asleep, it will doze off into some nebulous no-man's land where it doesn't know its thoughts and where it doesn't know the breath either. It's not uncommon at all. And it feels quite comfortable, actually, because it isn't aware of what's going on. So it's quite comfortable. One should be very much um, aware that this is a danger. It's the danger where concentration and energy no longer balance. If you remember, those two need to balance. They are two of the five spiritual faculties. And if they don't balance, we are out of balance. Well, strictly speaking, we're always out of balance. But if we don't get some balance in meditation, we won't meditate. And since we do want to learn to meditate, we have to balance that. So if the concentration is becoming woozy, foggy, this is helpful, using this method. If this method is not conducive to concentration, then the part by part, which needs even more mindfulness and attention. It's the one that needs far more. Now, having said all this, before I go any further in, ex- in recapitulating and also explaining calm and insight in more detail, I would like to ask who got pleasant feelings when going back to the whole body? Okay, those of you who have not had the entry into the jhanas through the breath, use that. Use it and stay then on the pleasant feeling for a good length of time. If that pleasant feeling arises before you finish with the body, do go to the pleasant feeling just as soon as it arises. Now before I will go any further, 
I think I should ask whether you have questions about this, which I assume you do. Yes. 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 In the in the Visuddhimagga, uh, we find seventeen different feelings listed. I'm quite sure there are twice as many. But tingling and floating are the two very common ones. So either way, doesn't matter. Yes. <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, what else? Yes. Well, uh, like what? Describe the pleasant, describe the unpleasant. In your groin. Okay. And what about the whole body? Okay. It's it's a pleasant what was the pleasant feeling like? Was it ha was it uh, the expansion did that bring about a feeling of lightness as opposed to heavy? Light as opposed to heavy. Okay. Well, it's only useful if you can expand it to be in the whole body. And then the unpleasant feeling disappears. This body always has unpleasant feelings, no matter what we do. Yes. What did you have? <laughs> what kind of an attack? Oh. <laughs> oh, that's a good word. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to borrow that. <laughs> Multiple interests. <laughs> That's up to you. That's up to you. <laughs> who knows whether meditation is worth it? Only the one who's doing it. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe you do. <laughs> Maybe it's uh, um, Maybe it's an uh, acknowledgement of the fact that you've now worked long enough at this business so that this is now coming. And also, as a um, consolation, the second time around, it probably will come quicker. You might not have to go through all the misery, maybe only three quarters of it. And it also the misery, of course, abates the longer we do it. So, up to you. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
that produced fear. Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Well, uh, fear is um, is uh, actually one of the steps on the inside path, which we can bypass if we can do the jhanas. So the uh, delightful feeling was it all over the body or was it only partially? All over the body. Okay. Well, try to get back to it and try to stay with it and try to see whether you can get to the next step. No. Oh, I forgot. Well, I'm glad you're asking that. I forgot to say that. Um, if it is the pleasant feeling, the pity, that does not need this letting go through the hand. Um, because the reason I did it is because some people probably had also other kinds of feelings, so other kinds of sensations, where this is necessary. But then it is the delightful feeling, then we just take it as our meditation subject and go on from it to joy. So it may actually not have been fear, it might have been resistance. Yeah, probably was resistance. I don't want to let go of this. Yeah, that's also important to know because that's a clinging. I don't want to really let go of this. I want to keep it. Right. So that's also an important insight in that aspect. But essentially, I want to say that with emphasis. When there is the pity, the delightful feeling, no need to go out through the fingers. Okay? Yes. Thoughts? Thoughts? I had some feelings. Uh, I had feelings that it was produced by thought. I had a thought, and then as I looked into the thought, and more or less, I think I found some insight in that thought. And then through either mindfulness or the insight, there was a sense of letting go Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't get a delightful feeling. I think it was, it was calm in some way. The delight is a sensation. Calm. Calm is in the mind. As a mind that isn't thinking becomes calm. So you were quite focused on the insight that you were getting. Is that it? And from that focusing on the inside, you became calm. Is that what, what was happening? Okay. Use that calm and stay with it so that it will produce the delightful sensation. Stay with the calm. I can't quite... Um, make out what it was, but uh, giving up that, what you're told to do, is not necessarily giving up. Yes, and then you became calm because of that? No, because I was absorbed in feeling. Absorbed in feeling? Yeah, what sort of feeling? <laughs> It was, uh, it was calm. 
Well, calm arises when there's no thinking. That's the only way we can ever get calm. And feeling is, in this case, sensation. Our emotion, of course, the next one. First one is sensation, next one is emotion. Try again and find out what it was, okay? Yes, yes. Uh, what is the imbalance? What is lacking? The concentration or the energy? can tell in the beginning that it's going to work all right, that's when you go towards calm, because that's what the mind is then uh, able to do. But when the mind is not doing that, when it's not having that uh, consistency to go towards calm, because calm is the consistency of mind, like the mind is yelling together, then you go towards insight. Take your body bits apart. Open up the zipper and take out the bits and pieces. Look at yourself in the way of the four elements. Look at yourself in the way of the khandas, the aggregate, which I will explain again. You look at the impermanence of the breath. Use the inside method at that time. And it's much better to sit the 45 minutes that one has um, made up one's mind to do because one is quite likely one is not going to come back after an hour. It's a very uh, well-known saying, the way to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> yes. Yes. Did you get feelings in the legs and in the feet? Mm. Yes, yes, sensation. Um, yes, that's all right. That's fine. Lying down is not such a good idea, but standing up is fine. This is another position that we can use. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, 
when the body feels calm. Feeling is in the mind. So there's no way the body feels calm. It's the mind that feels calm. If the body sits, he sits still. Is that what you mean? body is still, the, the meditation is all in the mind. It's got nothing to do with the body. We're only using the body because that's where we manifest. But my feeling of getting certain delight and the body is still in The mind feels. The mind feels. The body's comfortable. That's fine. Mind and body both have to be comfortable to meditate. It's only the mind that can feel. Every feeling is in the mind. That it's triggered by something in the body, yes, of course. There are sensations. The body only has sensations, nothing else. And the mind then tells a story about it. And when the body feels or has a pleasant sensation, then the mind feels contented. A bee. I couldn't hear you. But what came after the bee? I would hope so, yes. I mean, I would hope that you can gain some insight from the fear of the bee. Can you? I don't know. Can you? You would like to have no fear. Is that what you're saying? Are you saying you? I would like to have no fear? Okay. In that case, you will have to gain some insight into the reason for your fear. Ask yourself, what am I afraid of? I think I told you that already. And then when you get an answer, ask the answer, use it as a question until you get to the bottom line, remember? It's always the same thing. The bottom line is always ego. So what am I afraid of is the first question. And as you ask that, then you get an answer, you use the answer for a new question. Again and again. Whether it's afraid of a bee or a fly, whether you're afraid of a person or a situation, it's always fear. And you can question the fear. You question your own emotions. Whether you can remain calm with that or not, it's entirely up to you. 
I mean, who knows whether you can or not? Only you. I don't know whether you can remain calm. You can't do that. Can you do it? Yeah, but, uh, well, then you know if you can do it. How do you do it? That's not necessary. That's embellishment. You don't have to put anything into it. You just go out. Make it simple. As simple as possible. Don't embellish it. Just there, out. That's all. Not around. That's the way the human mind works. Around. <laughs> Make it straight. <laughs> yes. 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 I was asking about that uh, when we did it on the part by part. Whether anybody had trouble getting it out of the fingertips and the toes. When I was asking that. <laughs> It is, a, it is a, a, a difficulty which sometimes arises for people. And uh, it's, uh, it's, um, it's an inability to let go. And it shows itself in, in, in other things in life, too. And an inability to let go. And one may be clinging to certain, not only just possessions, but the worst part of it is that one may be clinging to opinion. And that is a very um, a difficult thing because one is making a, like a barrier around oneself. This is me and my opinions and I'm not going to change them. So to let go means that one is willing to open oneself up and not keep anything. And that's the mental part of it. So in order to do that now with that practice, it probably takes an additional determination to get here to the fingertips and say, all right, let go. The, uh, this getting stuck is a very, um, it's not uncommon. So first the mental understanding of it, the intellectual understanding what's happening, and then that extra determination. Okay? Yes? First time you said it, 
questions are or not are there strike having a new recipe let's say talking about cooking the first time I got a new recipe and I realized that I did it because I ate something I can't cook at it and I, and I, so we didn't, and I really don't do anything with it mm. none of the first time if I should use it and cook I'm just really probably not it you know? mm. until you do it several times and then you become you don't have to look at the recipe anymore and then you just cook it that's right It is actually quite easy, um, and uh, you're quite right. One of the things that one forgets if one has been doing that for the past 25 years is that it may not be that easy when you first start. <laughs> But it does take that little extra determination to really let go. And uh, it's a very important factor because letting go is the one key point of the spiritual life. So here it's more or less uh, um, determining something which is to let go, which we don't even want to keep. But yet we have to learn to let go. And the same we're learning also when we let go of thinking and go back to the meditation subject. Letting go is the key of the whole spiritual life. So it's a very important aspect of the practice. And you're quite right, we do need a uh, little time. You're quite right. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it feels a bit of a release, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> What was that? I didn't hear that. Uh, you d when you do the sweeping, you do it more than once. Is that what you said? Yes. When you go through, you do it more than once, or what? Yes. But you do it several times in succession. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yes. Yes. The, the emotion is also stuck in there. And uh, it's uh, quite uh, clear when we, for instance, have the same kind of either pleasant or unpleasant reaction to the same kind of situation over and over and over and over. If somebody says a certain word, we get angry. It may have nothing to do with us at all. So we've got that stuck in there. We've got these things stuck in there. And putting our in concentration on the parts of the body is like a trigger. It's just a trigger to get a, become aware of that emotion and be able to let go of it. It's a purifying aspect. It doesn't alone purify us. We've got to do something about it in daily life too. But the whole thing is stuck in there. I'll give you an give you an example, I give you an explanation how how it, how I like to explain it. 
You know what a little jack-in-the-box is? It's a little toy that children love to play with. It's a little doll sitting on a spring in a little cardboard box. Got a lid on. And when the child touches the lid, the little jack-in-the-box jumps out. Very nice. So then somebody comes along and pulls this jack-in-the-box out. It puts that little doll out. Just leaves the box with the spring. So the little child comes along and touches it and nothing happens. Takes a hammer, hits it, and nothing happens. Well, that's the same with us. We've got a jack-in-the-box sitting in there that's called anger and greed and uh, uh, dislike and whatever else, what name we give it. We can call it jack. And <laughs> the, the, the smallest trigger brings this thing out. So now here, because somebody says something or does something or we see something or hear something, some sense contact. In the meditation, we try to bring it out through the trigger of the touch of the attention, the mind attention to the different parts of the body. And as we bring it up, we can let go. Whereas in daily life, when this jumps out, we have a hard time letting go of it. Having one day, having pulled all this out, somebody can come with a hammer and nothing happens. So it's all sitting in there, the whole business. And the triggers that we get in life are we always feel, or not always, but very often feel justified in having all this stuff come out. But here, we can't feel justified. It just comes out. And therefore, it's easier to let go. So that's how we look inside. The emotional response, or what goes right through you. Oh yes, you're you're adding to them. Yes, we're constantly adding to them. That's why we need to take that internal shower every day. We're constantly putting new stuff in there. And we've also kept the old stuff because we haven't cleaned it out yet. So that's why we need to clean up every day, just like we wash the skin every day. So again and again, yes, we put in new stuff all the time until we're finished with it. Yes. That's right. Yes, that's right. Somebody else had the hand up. Yes. Uh, have you found that uh, this in, the intensity of the negative sensation decreases as you practice? Mm-hmm. Oh, certainly. As you practice, period. It doesn't matter what. As you practice, as you practice the uh, substitution 
as you practice a meditation, as you practice any of the purification that we have talked about, naturally the negativities decrease, they come less often, and also they are far less severe. They, in fact, they arise and cease. There's nothing you need to do any about them until one day they don't even arise anymore. But gently and um, gradually, they are far less often, they are of far less intensity, and they, we don't have to do much about them, as well, nothing at all, because they come and they go, and in the end they don't come. Very gradually, yeah. Very gradually. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Yes. It's like that. Um, the sleeping is the daily internal shower. That's quite right. Then, if one is able to do the um, meditative absorptions, it doesn't matter what you do. You just sit down and do them. But you still do your uh, purification through that daily shower in a fairly a consistent manner once a day fairly quickly, 20 minutes. If the sweeping brings more concentration, it can be used instead of watching the breath. If the sweeping is seen to be very useful for one, that one feels that afterwards one feels relieved and released and at ease, then it's a very useful technique. It doesn't have to be combined with doing the breath. It can be done just that. And you can also combine it with the breath. I think that everybody will find their own way. Not necessarily that what is easiest. But no, what's the... Delightful. You got into a delightful sensation on the after using the breath. Yes. Okay. Well, keep on with it. Oh yes, definitely. Definitely, the sweeping is at least while you're here in the course, at least two to three times a day, because that gets you in touch with your feelings. Very important. Extremely important. Yes. Yes, yes, before falling asleep, certainly, yes, yes. What keeps happening?
Can you watch it arise and cease, or does it stay with you? Does it go away? Okay. Does it go away quickly? Yeah, that's good enough. You watch the annoyance come up, and you watch it go away. That's fine. Should it stay with you, and you remain annoyed at yourself, or at the table, or at the dining room, or at the uh, whole outfit, or at the whoever, then, of course, you have to do something. And then you have to start with loving kindness and compassion towards whatever whom you are annoyed at. But if you can label it, see it come up, and go away, that's fine. That's actually the um, result of practice, the result of labeling. One sees it coming up, gives it a name, and says, ah, gone. Gone with the wind. Yes. If you need the second one in order to gain calm, you use it for calm. But if you don't need it, if you can do it on the breath, then you use the first one for the internal shower. The first one is a much more uh, cleansing operation. The second one is far more geared towards gaining calm. So if you can use this, uh, the breath for gaining calm, you can use the first one for the purification, for the internal. The mind is wherever you put it. Yes. Brain is a physical object. Yes. When you experience that, the, uh, the thing to do is to try and let go. Do um, you experience that outside of the meditation or only when you do the uh, practice, the uh, sweeping, or when you do the breath? Oh, with the breath. Oh, okay. Then go to the spot and gently come down and out the ears and again and again and again until the whole thing is relaxed. And then start again. Yeah. yeah. Go to the spot and then gently down and out the ears. Yes. Um, this is a different subject. Well, we, you can come along for the next four weeks. <laughs> We're going to continue. We're going to continue for the next four weeks. The Barbara is going to mention that 
uh, tomorrow evening uh, that we are those people who've been in the course here are going to have the extra privilege to come at any possible time that they have. Outside people, of course, they will have to come for the whole four weeks, but then the people who've been here and can only come for a little time, they'll have that. But Barbara will announce that tomorrow evening. And then, of course, they still have to go back to the world. But uh, hopefully one is better armed to uh, uh, deal with it. So because then if we deal with the world with insight and calm, which is what we get from the meditation, then the world does not have so much of a charge. We don't have so much of a sting. The Arahant is said about the fully enlightened one. Although touched by worldly circumstance, never his mind is wavering. That's a fully enlightened one. So also get touched by worldly circumstances. Nobody can escape the world because this body needs to be taken care of in worldly matters. But we have a way to get the mind so uh, calm and full of insight that it can no longer be touched. But it takes a little while to get there. Yes. Yes. Yes, you could say like that. Yes, yes. It's a sensation which creates the light in the mind. And it's, it's a sensation which is, uh, um, you can't mistake it. There's no way to mistake that sensation. I mean, nobody can mistake it for what it is. A uh, pleasant sensation. Oh, well, that's good enough. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, well, that sounds great. <laughs> Do it again. <laughs> uh, remember how what you did to get there and do it again. And uh, if it's pleasant and not delightful, the second time around it might become much stronger. But don't look for it. Just be concentrated on whatever you do. Do this method that we just did and see what happens. Or stop it at a certain point. Apparently, you were able to stop at a certain point and just become aware of that pleasant sensation. Is that right? Yes, well, that's it. Do you know what the thought was? Can you remember?
Mm-hmm. Well, that um, maybe you can try and see whether you can get to the feeling through um, loving kindness, which is the opposite of resentment. And see whether that helps. Just thinking it. Just thinking those things. You see, thinking is the sixth sense contact. We have five senses plus thinking. So thinking also creates feeling. That's why I keep saying, if you only think the loving-kindness meditation, that's fine. Eventually you're going to get the feeling. Don't worry about it. Thinking is a sense contact. So if you think something nice like that, even, you know, if you don't know the exact thing, something similar, it may create it again. And if you um, become aware of the sensation, put full attention on it, it may become stronger. It may, I don't know. You don't need to, no. Uh, If you are doing this particular method, and the other one, the first one, yes, you do finish. But on this particular method, which is only geared towards calm, if the delightful sensation arises at any point at all, you go to the sensation. doesn't matter. You don't have to finish. Now I was going through it, so, so we had to sort of finish that. Yes. It's very helpful. It's particularly helpful if you, if one isn't concentrated. If the mind uh, is going off on tangents all over the place and can't focus properly, then to get something back from the Dhamma, if one knows the Dhamma to some extent, and focus on that, the mind becomes concentrated, especially if it loves the Dhamma. If it's already concentrated and you already have, are you talking about the delightful sensation? Yes. Or we want to intensify? Well, the joy. Uh, the joy gets intensified through love. The loving feeling. And the uh, delightful sensation gets intensified through attention on it. Through staying with it. One-pointedness. So, um, then starting to think, no. No. Um, but, to think about the Dhamma when the hindrances arise, yes, that uh, multiple hindrance uh, business, that is, uh, that very helps by thinking about the Dhamma. Anything else? I want to use some more time in explaining a little more about the two aspects of calm and insight, particularly the insight aspect, because I have already given a lot of uh, guidelines for calm. The um, jhanas are all calm, the, this particular method goes towards calm, and calm is, is the means. 
and it's an indispensable means. And I've already explained why it is indispensable, because it has an automatic purification. It uh, automatically brings us the joyful aspect of the practice. It's the one thing that keeps people practicing, and it also changes our whole attitude towards ourselves, because within us we find something that we might have been suspecting was there, but never quite got at it. So we have a numerous and far more than what I've just mentioned benefits from it, but it's not the goal. The goal is insight. And this was the Buddha's great contribution and reform aspect of his teaching, because the eight jhanas were well known they can be found in the Rig Vedas and are 5,000 years old. And the Buddhist teaching is only 2,500 years old. They were being practiced, and they are still being practiced in pockets, some places in India. And they were being practiced, and probably in those days quite widely. But the Buddhist contribution and this reform aspect of the teaching was the fact that it wasn't enough. While it was an essential part of it and was absolutely needed for the spiritual life because the spiritual life has to have a different level of consciousness, it wasn't the end of the road. The end of the road is full insight. And full insight has many different steps and I have mentioned the first two. We often divide into nine. I divide into twelve because it becomes otherwise too cumbersome to put it all under one heading. The first two, which I've already described and I will um, recap on them, is that mind and body are two which can very easily ascertained when we are doing our meditation practice. The body breathes and the mind knows it. It's impossible for the mind to breathe and for the body to know it. And because of that, because we don't usually pay enough attention to these to that fact alone that we have two aspects of ourselves, we get confused, as we have already noticed probably just in this past hour or half hour, that we get confused with what the body does and what the mind does. The body has sensations, and it has action, and some of the action is autonomous, and some of it is voluntary. Moving one's body, we can either desist or not, depending on the mind. But the heartbeat is autonomous. It does it on its own. And the flow of the blood. So we have many autonomous actions in the body. But we don't have, other than in the mind, an overriding authority. Now, the mind is that. And we need to know that 
from our own personal experience and all you have to do is take a deep breath and become aware of who said to take a deep breath. Did the body say that or the mind? Just do it. That's all, that's all there is to it. And immediately we know there are two. One is the authority and one is the servant who has some autonomy like servants should have. Does some things on its own. And once we get that clear, we can get on with the practice. Until then, we might have two, one of two difficulties or both. The first one is that we see ourselves as a lump. One lump called me. And when we see ourselves called one lump, as one lump called me and can't distinguish between mind and body, we have no jurisdiction over changing our mind. We can't do anything because we think it's all one big muddle put together. But when we learn and see, because we're constantly changing our mind, that when we see that we can do it on purpose, we can change our mind on purpose. We don't have to wait for the different emotions and moods that change our mind. Then we realize there is some jurisdiction we have. We can get into control of the mind. We can actually be in control of ourselves. Until we are fully concentrated and never unhappy anymore, we are not in control. Because only a fool would voluntarily become unhappy. So if we are ever unhappy and sometimes not fully concentrated, we are not in control yet. But that doesn't matter. The first step is not to get into control, but the first step is to know those two things, mind and body. It seems so simple, and yet it does present certain difficulties for the reason of that we haven't thought about it, haven't paid attention to it, and may have heard differently. I mean, there are all sorts of opinions about and opinions and viewpoints which are constantly being put out as being the opinion and the viewpoint. But the Buddha said he does not teach by opinion and viewpoint. He only teaches by experience. Namely that what you yourself can experience. So mind and body as two. You can do it in walking meditation or just in getting up. Who says to get up? And then the body gets up. Who told you to come to this meditation course? Not the body. Surely the mind. And then the body had to, re- had to re- appear here because the mind said, come on, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very simple, really. And with that simplicity, we have a beginning of a spiritual practice because we practice in the mind. And we also have the beginning of our priorities. We get to know that there is nothing more important than our own mind. That the body is an adjunct that we try to keep healthy and well as much as we can. Most people don't succeed all that well, but as much as we can. And the mind is in charge. 
And then we have the second step, which is, of course, also easier to verify through the meditation, namely, that everything that has arisen must cease. A sentence which sounds simplistic and which most people don't even want to refute, but by the same token, most people don't want to pay attention to that. And some people actually have something against it. Now that means that we are bucking the law of nature. And doing that, pushing against the law of nature, is a resistance which hurts. It's like we are in front of a closed door and instead of trying to open it with a key, we're trying to push it open. So we are not using insight, but we're using brute force. And that hurts. So by resisting something which is irresistible, we are using pressure on ourselves to no avail and are making ourselves unhappy and tense for no good reason. Everything that arises has to cease. It's a law of nature. It includes the whole universe. It includes us. And since we're not so interested in the universe usually, but more interested in ourselves, we need to look at ourselves. Does the breath which has arisen cease? Does the thought which has arisen cease? Or can we keep it? Does the body which we have had 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago change? Or does it still look the same? Does the heartbeat come and go? Does the food that goes in, does it have to go out in order to stay alive? We can look at every aspect of ourselves, whether it's physical or mental, and verify the fact whether everything that arises has to cease. As we become aware of this arising and ceasing, we will notice that it is overshadowed by continuity. We have never, until it is brought to our attention, paid any heed to the fact that each breath is finished and a new one has to go on because it's continuous until we die, of course. The only time that we may have paid any attention to that is when we either were choking or having asthma or drowning and we were losing the breath. And all of a sudden it became something important to have. But until then, we just take it for granted. It's there all the time. It isn't. It arises and ceases. It arises and ceases continuously. Continuity overshadows impermanence. Now, because we have a certain amount of memory, very faint, but a certain amount of memory of the past in this lifetime. Some people can remember back to the age of two, some to the age of four, 
some even a little more. Of course, only in bits and pieces, nothing continuous. Because we have this memory, there seems to be a continuation of this one person, which is called me. Now, when you go home, you might be able to find an old photo album, maybe at your mother's house, where you are depicted from the day you were born. Take the photo album and then stand in front of the mirror and then look at this thing that was born there and then look at it when it was 2, 3, 4, 6, 8, 10, 20, 30 and so on and then look at the one in the mirror and then say, all these are me. Which one? How many me's? 10, 20, 100, 1000? How many? And another one tomorrow, and another one in 10 years from now, and another one in 20. Just physical. Continuous change. It has to be. There's no other way that nature can work. It's a law of nature that everything that arises ceases. So every cell in our body arises and ceases. I remember very well that we learned in school at age 10 or 11 that every seven years all the cells in our body change. And I also remember trying to figure that out, thinking that every seven years all the cells would disappear and I'd get a new lot. And trying to remember whether I was aware of that when I was seven. And of course I wasn't. So I give it up. In fact, I put it down to one of the absurdities that grown-ups deal with. Of course, by now, one has realized, and I have realized, that it's not that every seven years all these cells disappear and then you get a new bunch, but they're constantly disappearing. Until after seven years, all of them have. And all of them have been renewed. But it goes on constantly. And that's why through concentrating, concentration, particularly in the sleeping, in the first um, method, we can become aware of a continuous movement. A movement which seems to come together and go out, go out again. It's ourselves moving. That's the way it is. Now, we know all that. We've all learned that, that every seven years all our cells are renewed. And then we've probably said, well, so what? Or we've long forgotten it. Or it's uh, just one of these facts that have no application to anything that we do in daily life. But it has a great deal of application to it. Another thing which has come about in the last, 30, 30 years, I think, is the fact that some scientists here in America made some experiments in a bubble chamber. That's what they call this thing that they build. And they found out that there's not a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. 
They could actually see that in this experiment, that there's nothing but energy particles coming together and falling apart. Now, if these very uh, intelligent scientists would have included themselves in that, they might have been enlightened by now. (laughs) But they were just the observer. But as a meditator, we have to include ourselves. If the whole of the universe is included, it means me. If not me, who then? That's what it pinpoints. There's nothing but energy particles coming together and falling apart. Now, that's a very interesting statement, and we need to use it to become aware of this arising and ceasing. This constant coming and going. As we become aware of the constant coming and going in ourselves, in the thought process, in the feeling process, in the physical process, we get a feeling of fluidity. Instead of this feeling of solidity, the feeling we all have, other than when being in the jhanas, is one of solidity. This is me, and we know exactly where the outlines of the body are, and this is as far as me goes, and this solidity is supposed to be stable and static, and it's supposed to have a protection system, which we try to evolve somehow or other, And then, of course, we look at the mind, which is also called me, and that goes a little further than the boundaries of the body. It might go as far as our business and our family. It might sometimes go into the newspaper and get upset about the government and all the rest of the worldly happenings, and that's me. This is a solid, stable, and static me. But if we can watch ourselves with a totally realistic objectivity and see that this movement in body and mind is constantly going on, this idea that we have of a solidity and stable, static, almost like a tower that we are in a certain height and a certain width disappears. We have a, get a feeling of fluidity. We can flow with what is going on. Go with the flow. Nice words, huh? Well, let's try it. It's, um, in fact, I saw it as a sticker on a, on a bumper sticker. Very nice how to do it. It's been totally misunderstood in the 60s and the 70s. You just do what comes into your mind. That was understood to be going with the flow. But going with the flow means that you realize this complete and utter impermanence and changeability, which means from birth to death there's nothing but change. Can you remember what you thought this morning? 
Can you remember what you thought five minutes ago? Can you remember what you felt yesterday? Can you remember what you felt one minute ago? Nothing. All gone. Never mind twenty years ago. Some of the peak experiences stay in our memory. And our memories are, are fragile. We forget mostly the important things and we remember the things that made an emotional impact and we remember them very often wrongly. It's well known that memory is one of our weakest mental formations. When there has been a car accident and there are six witnesses, the police is totally aware of the fact that they're going to get seven opinions. Everybody's seen something else because we can't remember well because we always put our own ideas into it. So this memory plays games with us because it seems to say, well, you've been there all the time. You've been there for 20 years, for 50 years, for 60 years. It's always been you. But it wasn't. It was something totally different. Now, if you remember something that you've done, let's say, 20 years ago, would you do it again? Probably not. You might even be sorry that you did it, which is not necessary. Because 20 years ago, you were a totally different person. It doesn't matter. So, we do things at one stage in our lives, and then we do something entirely different another stage. Because we're never the same, one day after the next. To get away from that feeling of stability and solidity takes away fear because we are constantly afraid that somebody is going to undermine the stability and solidity, the me. The support system that the me needs in order to feel stable and solid. Once we don't want to feel stable and solid anymore, we don't have to be afraid of anything. Because whoever wants to undermine our stability is welcome to it. They might as well do it because we don't believe in it anyway anymore. We need to have a mindful attention to that aspect of ourselves. And that's why I have said to use some of the time in this retreat for watching the impermanence of the breath, the impermanence of every movement, movement that we make, whether it's in walking meditation or just going to the dining hall or just eating, everything has to have beginning, middle, end, always finishes. And to see also the impermanence in nature out there, how some leaves and some grass is dead, some is alive, some might be growing, some might just be dying, and to refer that to oneself, to feel this immensity of the manifestation of which we are part, 
and not to feel so separate from it, but to feel embedded in it, to feel embedded in that movement. When we feel embedded in that movement, we lose a bit of our ego delusion and we lose a bit of our separation and we lose a bit of our fear. Fear is a human condition as long as we think we need to protect a certain stable, solid, static entity. As soon as we forget that, no longer care about it, no fear. Because we are part of the whole movement. And if the movement should happen to be such that at one stage, at one point, the movement goes into death, well, that's the movement. That's all it is. Eventually it will anyway. So whatever happens, it's all right. It just moves. Anicca, impermanence, is the first of three characteristics of the universe to give us insight. I've mentioned it several times already and it is important to use some of our contemplative and meditative time to see it a little more clearly. It's a second step of insight. Without that, we are, although we may become calm, it may not create the results, the calm, may not create the results that they could if we had a little bit of insight into the impermanence of everything, including the calm, of the meditative calm. The meditative calm is also impermanent. That's why I said, please, at the end, always look, that too is impermanent. So this is the one of three characteristics, and the one which is overshadowed by continuity, which very often is shunned because it does not support the ego delusion enough. It's not enough of a support system. If I'm so impermanent, where am I? Which is the right question. If I'm that impermanent, where am I? And it also needs a bit of Trust and confidence, one of the five virtual faculties, coupled with wisdom, in order to investigate that. The confidence in the direction of the teaching, which then, of course, has to become one's own experience, but the investigation has to be based on confidence, because otherwise one isn't going to investigate. I will tell you about the other two uh, characteristics of the universe also, but this is now the first one and the one that we've always already have had a lot of reference to. The calm path is our means. The inside path is our goal. We need to practice both. We need to know when we're doing the one or the other. The jhanas are calm. Staying on the breath is calm. Recognizing impermanence is insight. We can always combine both, but we can't do it simultaneously. That's enough on that. If you have any questions, please.
enough. Yes. Hmm. Are you sure that was the body, not the mind? I don't know where it was. Just that you know, the tingle that you see that ah, yeah. You can change the rhythm of the tingling at will. Could yes. And change the rhythm. Yeah, you can change it. No, of course not. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. Hmm. Yes, uh, experiencing uh, impermanence and then having despair about it means only one thing, that one is resisting the impermanence, that one doesn't like it. So one hasn't got enough uh, practice, skill or information or guidelines to recognize the fact that to resist the law of nature is foolish, to say the least. One could say more. To resist the law of nature is uh, uh, suicide, one mental or physical. So if that's the law of nature, there's one thing to do with it, and that is not only to accept it, but to realize that it is the most releasing and relieving flow that there could be. To resist it brings despair, yes, because it isn't the way I want it. But can you imagine having to live on this planet for 5,000 years, or even for 500? I think it's a dreadful thought. I think it's much better not to have to do that. So the despair comes from resistance huh? and rejection. Okay, anything else? Yes. Sorry, I'm not quite sure that I understood. Can you repeat? Yes. Right. Right. To get rid of the despair. You mean that to, to or to, to yes, which gets rid of the despair. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, again and again, being the objective observer of oneself watching everything that arises in one, how it ceases again. And what I have said here also is, as you watch the impermanence of the birth, the beginning, middle, end, or just watching how it comes in and then finished and goes out, 
watching the thoughts as they come and they go. Then also, as you do that, becoming aware of the fact that there is no way you can stop it. You can't. It just is like that. And as you watch that and become more and more aware of this continual change which is happening in you, then when you see that you're resisting that, then seeing that the resistance makes you unhappy. So we're making ourselves voluntarily unhappy. So as we see that we make ourselves voluntarily unhappy, we am sure we get the idea that that isn't very wise. So we can drop that, dropping our, drop that idea and just keep watching how we ourselves are depicting this characteristic of impermanence constantly. So when we see that, then we may have um, an incentive to learn to accept it. The, uh, the resistance is due to the fact that we want to have and to keep. We are <clears throat> stuck to something which we want to keep. Like you were saying earlier, that flypaper? Yes. Yeah, well, that's the same thing. Flypaper. <laughs> and, I mean, it's not necessary to carry flypaper around. <laughs> so, and it's, uh, it brings um, uh, discomfort in the mind. It's very uncomfortable. So, to realize that everybody who has ever lived has died. So, everybody who is living now will die which includes me, is a very relieving thought because we're no different from anybody else. We're all one and the same. And to try and to be different, the one and, one and only, it does make things uncomfortable because you have to be something special and it doesn't really, doesn't really feel good to be something special. There used to be a Zen newspaper in Australia which was called Nothing Special. I really like that. I really like that title. Unfortunately, they stopped it. Now they're calling it something about the moon. Um, but nothing special. <laughs> now nothing special is a really good title. We're nothing special. We're just part and parcel of the whole thing. And it feels much more comfortable to be embedded in all that. So the, the step is to keep watching again and again that introspection to see how it is all changing all the time and that we cannot resist. Because, for instance, if we were not changing our physical movements, we'd be stuck to this pillow for the rest of our lives. Nobody would like that, would they? Very uncomfortable. Well, it's the same with everything else. We've got to move. And we are moving. So, does that have anything in it? You can use? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. We are all dying and some people are experiencing more imminence. And I'm wondering from a Buddhist perspective, how do you um, how do you address it or how do you be with someone who is it's right here? Dying now. Yes. Um, one of the things that 
one needs to do with a person who is dying is to remind them of all the good things they've done in this life. Because most people have regrets. They have regrets for what they have omitted or committed. So it is very important to remind them, and if one is a family member, one may be able to do that even better because one remembers the things. Or if one is a close friend, one may know some of the things. And if one doesn't know them, one needs to find out what are the good things that person has done. Because if it's a total stranger, one doesn't know. And to keep on reminding that person of a full and well-lived life.